I'm Georgie King, and I'm joined here today by Tim Caulfield, co-founder of Caulfield Morris, who is one of our new partners as a part of our Enhanced Family Office Services. So today, Tim's joining me, and we're going to talk a little bit about Caulfield Morris and what you do, and also explain in some detail how you will be supporting our families as we go forward into the art and antiques market. So, Tim... Am I right in saying there are some likenesses between our family office and your experience in working in family businesses? Your father was involved in the antiques market, is that right? This is absolutely right. Yes, I was, I was brought up living initially over the top of an antique shop down in Lymington in Hampshire. And despite my best endeavours, uh, antiques and art got into my bloodstream. And despite going off and joining the army and training as an engineer, I found myself drawn back into the, the fascinating world of art and antiques. Initially, I went and worked for my father in his gallery. But then one fateful day, a chap called John McCarthy from a business called McCarthy and Stone, who some people will have heard of, but they built retirement houses, still do build retirement houses all over the country. He had just sold his business, floated it on the stock market, and was a local hero to everybody in Lymington because he was, in fact, a carpenter and Stone was a bricklayer and they had done incredibly well. But anyway, he came into the gallery one day and said, introduced himself and said, are you Tim? I went, yeah. He said, well, people tell me you're relatively honest. I just bought a big house near Salisbury and I'd love you to help me furnish it. So I said, well, you've come to the right place. You know, come on in. He said, no, no, no. I don't want to buy any of this overpriced junk in your gallery. I want you to come with me into the marketplace. Tell me what to buy. And just as importantly, tell me what not to buy. How about it? Will you do it? So that's really where it all started. I, I worked for John for about five years. And at the end of that five years, I realized that my days as a gallery owner were over and that I was going to set myself up as an independent advisor. And that's what I've been doing ever since. That's fantastic. And actually, in some ways, quite similar to what we do here. And we have a saying which is relatively similar to, to what you're suggesting you do for your clients, which is collaboration begins with a conversation. So would you say that that's something that helped you come about Caulfield Morris? Definitely, Georgie. Yes, it's, it's, I would say collaboration starts with many conversations, not just one. Um, part of what we have to do is get inside our clients' heads. But equally, they have to get inside our head and understand how we judge pieces. And then, as you say, it becomes, it becomes a true collaboration. We can look at objects knowing that they're the sort of thing the client might like, and when we choose one that we like particularly, the client then understands that of the subset of things they might like, this is actually a really good one. Otherwise, we wouldn't have drawn his attention to it. I mean, I, I often like to say that what we do ends up almost being a psychic experience. I can walk into an auction house and see 300 items and spot one piece and think, oh my God, Georgie would love that. And I'll take a picture of it with my phone, send it to you, and you'll email me back a second later going, gosh, I love that, Tim. Where did you find that? That's just what I had in mind to put on top of my dressing table. And, and you didn't know you wanted it. I didn't know you wanted it. But when I saw it, somehow I knew that you'd like it. And because you had got to know me, uh, you liked it. So yeah, collaboration starts with a conversation. It's a very special thing to be able to do, that ability to know. And because people have such varying tastes as well, you must find that quite difficult sometimes. It takes time. Both us, Caulfield Morris, and the client have to, have to devote time to exploring the market, exploring their own taste. We don't teach people 
about taste. I actually believe that most people have good taste. They just don't know that they've got good taste. And um, this, is <laughs> this is a funny thing, but I think if I was to line up, say, 10 Picassos that were all roughly the same size, all painted by Picasso throughout his life, I then ask 100 people to choose which of those 10 they like the best. I think about 95 of them would choose the same one because the best just is the best and everybody can see it. What people don't understand when they first enter the market is why that one that's the best is maybe five times as expensive as the second best and perhaps 10 times as expensive as the fifth best and you know, 100 times more expensive than the worst one. And part of our job is to teach people that, yes, they have great taste, they can spot the good thing, but they need to understand with our help that the best thing is actually the, the best one to buy. And despite the fact it seems the most expensive, it's, in the long term, it's probably by far the best thing to do. You must have clients coming to you for a variety of different reasons. I mean, the term value, obviously, is relatively broad. As you said, you have clients that come to you and will ask you to decorate an entire house and therefore they want to be surrounded by things that they love as opposed to things that are maybe of a good investment. Or would well, you say that I, there's it, both? It, it should be possible to do both. That's, that's really the whole point. I've recently been furnishing a, a really beautiful country house, which I can mention, I think it's called Chettle down in uh, Dorset, grade one listed. And it was bought by this family who had a desire to return it to its former glory. It had been sadly neglected over the past sort of 100 years. And, and I believe that everything in a house should be bought with care, not just because the overall effect will then be better, but because if... My, one of my favorite phrases is maximizing value, minimizing risk. And if you buy with care, you take the risk out of the buying but also you create something which is, which is really fabulous. So you're building almost like a work of art yourself. So, for instance, you know, when you go to the front door, the front door should first of all be the appropriate front door for the house. But why shouldn't the door knocker be a great door knocker? Now, it'll only cost you a few hundred pounds to buy a great antique door knocker, but sticking that on a great door makes you know, the initial impression when a visitor comes up to the front of the house, it, it makes it better. Similarly, the door knob. You know, don't just go to B&Q and buy a new doorknob. You know, if it's a beautiful period house, get a beautiful period doorknob. And so on. You know, right as you go through the house, the candlesticks, the light lighting fixtures, the rug, everything can be bought with care. Absolutely. And so, as you were saying, actually, education is a huge part of, of the journey with your clients. It's actually teaching them they must walk away having gone on that journey with you to decorate their house, knowing a lot more about the market and about art and antiques than they did previously. And knowing more about the objects. I think if, if you just let your interior designer choose objects for you, you won't enjoy those objects. But if you look at, just say a candlestick, and you, you know that it was made in 1765 by a man called John Cave, who made, was a great candlestick maker. He made more candlesticks in London in that period probably than anybody else in the world. And that London at that time was the center of the decorative arts and that you had to have a candle because otherwise you wouldn't be able to read at night. You know, all these things enhance your experience of living with that candlestick. And you don't just walk into the room and see stuff. You see individual items and you understand them, you enjoy them. You see a story. You see a story. Absolutely. 
So would you be able to give a couple of other examples about how you've worked with clients? So obviously there's the beginning to end journey of whether it's decorating a house or um, a second home or whatever it may be. What are the other ways that you may support them with some of these kind of burdens and pleasures? Well, I think the, the main thing about being an art advisor is that that is all we do. We are immersed in the art market you know, 24-7, literally. My wife gets very cross with me because I'm hardly ever without my phone and looking at my emails. But it, most people don't have that time. And, and so we are our clients' eyes and ears in the market. And you know, sometimes you have someone who collects in a real niche area. For instance, we have a, another client for whom we did a pretty much a whole house. And he, his house used to belong to Florence Nightingale. Consequently, he has become an avid collector of anything to do with Florence Nightingale. So if ever we see a portrait of Florence Nightingale, a photograph of Florence Nightingale, a letter by Florence Nightingale, he is interested. And, but he doesn't have time to keep his eyes open for Florence Nightingale 24-7. Uh, we do. So it can be very niche. And I assume a lot of time spent, whether it's in auctions or how does that work? Then you must have connections with private dealers and auctions and scouring the yeah, the, market. The, the, the word can get out. I'm at the moment trying to find pieces of art that were once in a major English house, which were dispersed over the sort of period of 200 years. We are looking to find pretty much anything that relates to that house. And it's, it's hard. It's hard. There was, there was no major dispersal. There was no major Sotheby's house sale, which often there, in these cases there was. So it seems that the objects just trickled out of the house over time. And so trying to track them down is very hard. So that's a case where we have to put the word out quietly through the, our network of dealers and agents saying, by the way, if you know anybody connected to this family who has any objects that they maybe would like to, to sell, we would love to hear about it. So, yes, it's, it's a bit like being a detective yeah. sometimes. <laughs> Fantastic. Would you say, I mean, the majority of your clients, if they're coming to you, and, and would you say that they, they've gone through some kind of major liquidity event as with our clients, or do you do smaller services as well? If someone was to come to you and say, I want to find a painting by this particular artist, and it was just a one-off, or do you tend to find that your clients are with you for a longer period of time? M most of our clients are with us for a longer period of time, but we're at the moment working with a contemporary art specialist from New York, who has a client who decided that he wants to buy some old art as well. And she doesn't know anything about old art, so we're collaborating with her to help her provide that service to her client. He bought a picture by a man called Grimshaw about a year ago. He just, you know, This lady from New York just called us up and says, hey, we want to buy a Grimshaw. So we were able to, to check all the Grimshaws that were on the market at that particular time and make some recommendations as to which one we would buy if we were her client. So you just mentioned the contemporary art market. Actually, your team at Caulfield Morris, you're, you've got relatively broad um, knowledge, haven't you, across, across the Yes, team? I've tried. I mean, I should explain, I suppose, that Caulfield Morris really is a family affair because Daniel Morris, my business partner, uh, his mother used to work for my father. So that's how we met. He was a director at Sotheby's before he left and teamed up with me. We then have a guy called Martin Downer, who is an expert in jewellery, used to be head of jewellery at Sotheby's, but also has a great interest in historical objects. 
he has helped a number of our clients, well, one of our clients, build a collection of Nelsonia and things related to, to Nelson. And we have a lady called Flora who does modern British art and then Fraser who does contemporary art. And the contemporary market is very broad and confusing and exciting. Quite difficult to get your hands on. Yes, it's, very, it's a very confusing marketplace. And you know, we, we have been talking about buying things at auction and buying things in galleries. When you're buying contemporary art, the paint is still wet and you're buying it from a gallery that represents the artist rather like a record label used to represent a, a potential rock star. And, and I think for artists, often being picked up by the major gallery is, is, a, is a major moment in their career, much as it was for the Beatles to be, to be picked up one day by Epstein. And so what, what tends to happen is that uh, an artist will be hyped up and become very, well, not very popular, but will sell out. Their gallery shows will sell out. And the next year, they will have another gallery show. And the prices will perhaps be twice as much as they were the previous year. And those will all be sold out because people who've missed buying one the previous year will buy one the second year. The, question, the big question is, are those works worth what you are paying for them? Because the only person setting the price you pay is the gallery. And until there is life in the secondary market of that artist, I personally feel a little uncomfortable. But of course, by the time the secondary market's been established, the opportunity to buy at the bottom and profit greatly has been lost to some extent. But this is where the concept of maximizing value and minimizing risk comes in. I think buying something right at the beginning is exciting, but it's risky. For me, I would rather buy something once there's a secondary market established and admittedly try to do that at the beginning and then ride the wave from there on. I just think that, that buying right at the beginning is very risky. But, of course, Fraser doesn't agree with me. I was going to say, you must have, you must have differences in opinion <laughs> no, no, on Fraser that. Fraser loves to study who's doing what at the sort of nether regions of the, of the business and to spot the people that are going to be picked up by the big galleries and will become major names. And I was saying that one of the things that I think sets aside an artist who is going to endure from one who will be purely a fashion statement, they have to say something. They have to have maybe a political point to make or, or some emotional state that they're trying to convey to the viewer of their work. And you know that there are so many people painting, making art today that will never break into the... They'll never be remembered in 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 years' time. But the ones that are will be the ones who, who really made a statement. And that's what Fraser loves to do, to, to try to identify those. And that's what you try and support your clients with, I assume, is actually making those right decisions and going with those right artists who will be remembered in a field that is relatively highly populated, especially with the contemporary art market. But jewellery is actually quite an interesting one because I recently was learning about, which I didn't realise, and I think a lot of people don't realise, that um, jewellery itself, there are artists, whether it's Calder or other artists, who have become jewellers in their own right at certain times and have created pieces which almost are art and yes. not just jewellery. So that's quite an interesting space. Do you see that that's become more popular or...? I think, I think there are two things to say about jewellery. The first thing that uh, I was saying about art, but there is a ton of jewellery in the world. There really is masses of it. Most of it is not very good. By and large, when you're buying jewellery, you're actually buying stones. 
And if you want an engagement ring, that you know, 90% of the price of the engagement ring should be the cost of the stone. Beyond that, there are pieces of jewellery that are art. There are designers who are artists, much the same as there are with furniture makers. You know, there are furniture designers who have transcended, moved from being a craftsman to being an artist. And it's the same with jewellery. And some of those are keenly collected, but it's a very, very small number. But if you get into one of those ones, then it's a great collecting passion. And they, they do have you know, serious auction track records, and you can, you can make very shrewd investments in the, in the jewellery world as well as buying something that you love. Yeah. But it's always worth remembering that, that the bulk of the real value is in the stones. And that's quite a personal moment, I'm guessing, if it's whether it's an engagement <laughs> ring that you you must have had some interesting moments with your clients. Oh, uh, yeah, well, <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean, we, you know, as, as I say, we love to maximize value and minimize risk. And we met this young man some time ago who wanted to buy an engagement ring. And he walked uh, Martin past the window of Graf in Bond Street. And he says, I want one like that. And it was priced at about 100000 And Martin said, well, that's fine. We can, we can create one like that. And so they went off and visited some diamond dealers. Now, I don't know if you've ever visited diamond dealers, but it's a pretty, it, it can be a pretty seedy affair. You know, little offices and little rolls of black velvet and a, and a few little stones. And anyway, they found a stone of the same size, the same cut, the same clarity as the one in the window of Graf for 30000 And Martin said, well, there you are. That's just what, you know, we need to buy that. And then we can create a ring. You know, I know plenty of jewelers who can build a ring that we can mount that stone and it'll be just the same as the one in Grass Window and it'll have cost you 35000 Brilliant. The guy says, oh, thanks very much, Martin. That's fantastic. fascinating, fascinating. And he said, I'll just think about it. And he went away. And after about a week, I thought, Martin, what's going on with that big diamond you're going to buy? And he goes, oh, that's funny. I haven't heard from him. I'll, um, I'll give him a ring. So he gave him a ring. He said, oh, Martin, I'm really sorry. I went to Graff and bought the one in the window. So what did you do that for? And we, we sat in the office and thought, why did he do that? And then we realized that so much of that is the experience. It's the uniform doorman opening the door for you. It's the deep pile carpet. It's the glass of champagne strut into your hand. And if you're going to do it with your fiancé, you don't want to be going to a little backstreet diamond <laughs> dealer. You want to be going to the swanky gallery on Bond Street. So, you know, it's not always about getting the thing for the cheapest possible price. No, absolutely. There was an interesting lesson for us that we have to make it fun for people and glamorous as well. Especially in those intimate moments. Yeah, well, especially in those <laughs> intimate moments, yeah. We've actually titled our Family Values magazine, which you are contributing to as one of our partners introducing our especially our passion asset partners and we've touched it alternative thinking so relatively broad question but as an alternative investment what would your first purchase be should money be no object what what do you believe at the moment in this market would be the first investment that you would make well this is this is intensely personal i i would buy a 17th century table clock by a man called thomas tompion who was the greatest clockmaker of his day who was really a scientist and an engineer as well as an artist. And his clocks have totally stood the test of time. They have ticked for 350 years and will no doubt tick for another 350 years. They are things of great beauty. It's hard to believe the decoration that you see on the back plates of these things. The ingenuity that he came up with to create alarms, alarm clocks and things called repeating clocks uh, some of them played music, and they, they just are wonderful blend of engineering and art. 
and technology. I suppose it's a bit like somebody maybe buying a, an iPad in, in 300 years' time because you know, he was right at the head of technological developments at that time. And it was a very exciting time to be in England and London. So that, yeah, that's what I'd buy. That's fascinating. <laughs> so we've spoken a fair amount about the process of purchasing, whether it's art or antiques or objects or whatever it may be. But what about the, the kind of on the flip side when it comes to the, the process of selling something? Um, how do you tend to go about, about that with your clients, whether it's in auctions or... Well, the first thing to say is to stress what I've said already, and that is if you bought well, the selling side is much, much easier. When people are thinking of selling a work, they almost inevitably think first of putting it to auction, which can be the right thing to do, but it can also be the wrong thing to do. First thing about putting something to auction is the price it fetches ultimately depends on just two people, the two ultimate bidders. And if it is the sort of object which is relatively unusual, it's conceivable that there will only be one bidder on the day. And if there's only one bidder on the day, then it'll sell at its reserve. Or... If there's no bidders on the day, which can happen, it won't sell at all. Now, the problem with a piece that doesn't sell is that that goes into its provenance, that goes into its record. And whenever you try to sell it in future, people will look up online and they go, oh my God, that didn't sell in 2020. What was wrong with it? Why didn't it sell in 2020? And for the rest of its days, that object will be undervalued because of that history. So if there's any danger that it might go unsold, then sending it to auction is probably the wrong thing to do. Selling it by private treaty in a measured, calculated, calm way is probably far better. And people like us in that situation can seek out likely buyers and talk to them and, and hopefully achieve a good result. If, on the other hand, you have something which is world-class, like a piece of contemporary art where the artist is really hot, it's actually quite hard to determine what the price it might fetch is. So in that case probably sending it to auction is the right thing to do. Because if there's 10 people out there who really want to buy it, then chances are the price will go way above what anybody thinks before the auction. So then you have to decide, well, which is the best auction house to sell this particular kind of work? And where? Is it better sold in New York? Is it better sold in London? Is it better sold in Hong Kong? All sorts of questions to ask. And then there's the whole issue of fees. Who is going to charge you the most for selling it? Buyer's premium is, most people know what buyer's premium is, but essentially if you buy something at auction for 100000 it actually costs you 125000 because the auctioneer charges you this thing called the buyer's premium on top of the hammer price. Now when you come to sell, the price that you're quoted, oh yes, we think this is going to make 80 to 100 is hammer price. So if it sells at 80 the person buying it will pay 105 So there's a big big buy-sell spread. Now, if you've got something really desirable, it's possible sometimes to negotiate with the auction house to share some of the upside. So you'll hear people talking about, oh yeah, Sotheby's offered me 105% of the hammer price. So in that case, because they really want the work consigned to them, they're offering to share some of the buyer's premium with you. And that's all open to negotiation depending on, on the work. But then the other side of it, as we, as we said, is where do you set the the estimates and you don't just go with the auction house that puts the highest estimate on because it may well be that they can't deliver it they can't deliver a buyer at that high price so you, you must keep the estimate competitive to encourage bidders to bid but at the same time don't be persuaded to set it too low because if there's only one bidder you'll be giving it away 
So there's lots of things to think about when you come to sell, whether you do it by private treaty, whether you do it by auction. Finally, there's the whole issue of pre-auction guarantees, um, which is another area which is entirely negotiable. But if you're worried about a piece being unsold, it's sometimes possible to find a potential buyer who will guarantee to buy it at a negotiated level. And then if on the day it sells for more than that guaranteed level, he gets a share of the upside with you and the auction house. So again, an interesting thing to do. It takes the risk out of selling. It takes the unsold risk out. But equally, you, you give away some of the upside as well. So lots of things to think about. Yeah, very complex world. And mm. something that I'm sure you must also support your clients with other than the purchasing, is actually that selling oh, process. It must yes, be yes. a relatively timely process. And as you said, <clears throat> especially when clients are quite time poor and, and don't have the, the time spare to actually go through all of those various different options. Well, they, they also probably don't have the personal relationships that we have with the people in all the various auction houses and, and the other art agents. So without those, it's quite hard to, to get these dialogues really going, which, which you have to do to get the best result. Absolutely. So having actually transitioned from a gallery owner to an advisor, as you were just saying, and, and the whole story of that journey, um, we have a phrase internally that we use with our clients of collaboration begins with a conversation. And actually, that must be something that's incredibly important for you now in your advisory role. So what do you see as being the, the major differences between your role back then and your role now? Well, it's, it's very simple. As a gallery owner, you are trying to sell what you have in your gallery to whoever comes through the door. It doesn't really matter what they want. You've just got to try and sell them what you have. And the thing that was so liberating about becoming an advisor is that in, instead of having to buy things for stock that you thought you could sell for more than you paid for them, you could turn the whole thing around and say to the client, right, we're going to try to buy the best one of these for you. Nothing to do with me, but the best one for you. Which we'll look at the whole market and we'll say, right, this one is the one you should buy. And so you're on the same side as your client, whereas in the gallery situation, you're actually on opposing sides. You don't want the same thing at all. So I found it really liberating and why I stopped being a gallery owner. That independence is so important when you're trying to make the best decision for your client as well. It's something that we see a lot internally at Sander. It, absolutely. And, and it's the, to be personal about it, it's far more enjoyable. That's the thing that I that I think I found most surprising once I started to do advising is the, the pleasure in finding the right piece for the right person is, is, um, is great. And the other thing is you're buying the best rather than compromising. As, as a dealer, it's very tempting to, to compromise. You see something, you think, oh, that seems quite cheap. There's probably a reason why it's cheap. But you go, well, maybe if we restore it this way or if we frame it that way, we can make it more desirable. But it still isn't the best example of its kind because the best example of its kind would be a lot of money. And as a dealer, you kind of think, oh, do I really want to spend all that money on buying the best? But when you're looking at it from the client's point of view, generally speaking, the best is the best and that's the one you should buy. Yeah. And on their side, it will help build that trust as well, knowing that you're making the right decision for them and, and not just because of the fact that you have a piece in the gallery that you yeah, want to sell. Totally. It's, it's all about trust. And that's where the, where the conversations come in. So speaking of trust, we actually talk a lot internally about building long-term trusted relationships with our clients and especially across generations where the needs can be quite different. Do you have any examples of where you guys have had those relationships? 
Absolutely, yes. I think probably my favourite one is a, a lovely couple who we must have met probably 20 years ago now at least. And they, at the time, were living in a terrace house in Hampstead, which is you know, pretty swanky in itself. But he was a hedge fund guy and the business went very well. They moved to Switzerland and uh, we helped them to furnish and decorate a, a big chalet in Verbier. And then ultimately he sold the hedge fund for really very large sum of money. And they bought a house in St. Bart's, which we also helped them to fill with beautiful things. Meanwhile, the two teenage children grew up, as they tend to do. And one of them is running his own very successful tech business now and is getting quite serious about contemporary art, and we're helping him. The other one is living in New York, and he's quite into photography, and we're helping him to, to buy some great pieces to decorate his, his apartment over there. And then going back to the parents, he has become a passionate collector of watches, and uh, we've just helped him to buy a very good Patek, vintage Patek. And for the silver wedding, he decided he wanted to buy his wife an Aston Martin DB5, and we helped him to do that. Uh, which was a lot of fun. And then for the diamond wedding, we helped them to buy a diamond necklace. So throughout their life, really, we have followed the family and done a lot of different things for them. And I think that actually links in really wonderfully with what we're talking about and what we touched on earlier in the conversation is through these partnerships that we're looking to develop. It's all about touching those milestones in a family's life and supporting them with with those special moments, whatever it may be, whether it's buying a painting or, or finding a car or, or whatever it may be, because they're important moments to those clients. So like you said, you're not a, uh, an interior designer. So the difference between a, a gallery owner and interior designer, it's being an advisor. So it's really just dealing with whatever the needs are of that particular client. Whatever the needs are. And, and also, you know, coming back to my phrase, maximizing value, minimizing risk, all of those purchases of all of those things, which were milestone events they had to be fun they had to be i mean the diamond necklace had to be a surprise so i mean there was all sorts of subterfuge involved <laughs> in getting that to switzerland for the, you know for the time and um, they all had to be bought at the right price so that they were sensible investments as well as being um, milestone markers in their lives so we are building value all the time for the family and it's interesting how the children are now beginning to take some interest in what the parents are buying because ultimately they'll be theirs. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Tim, for coming in today. Well, thank you, Georgie, for having me. It's been a real pleasure talking about uh, family office affairs. Absolutely. So I've been Georgie King. And I've been Tim Caulfield from Caulfield Morris. And this is Sandair on Air.